Hello. Courtney here walking out of the media gate. Um, <laughs> immediately heard some England fans singing football's coming home. And then I want to pass a piece of volunteer. It's very obviously Australian. It's that they need to get their hearts broken in the final. Absolutely cackled. Um, but yeah, just some quick thoughts after the match, you know. I think tonight we just saw the, and I, I mean, I tweeted this, but tonight I think we really saw the importance of, of going deep in really big tournaments. And that was really the difference maker that England had compared to Australia. Um, not necessarily saying that, obviously at times Australia were hit by nerves, and, but for England, when we look at really their path from the group stage on, there were moments where the backs were against the wall and they, you know, sometimes by luck and then sometimes just by pure quality, they were able to kind of uh, succeed in those moments and kind of overcome and I feel like there was no better example of that tonight when Sam Kerr went for the equalizer. That city was absolutely rocking. The atmosphere was something like I've never experienced before in my entire life. And I mean, for this country, they had never been to a World Cup semifinal before. Um, and I mean, even with the chance to make it to a World Cup final, they've just never done something like that. I think see this country has fallen in love with this team, and I hope that they're able to go and be able to support them in the third place match. I hope they win the third place match. I don't want to talk about the final. Colin and I clash. I want them both to lose. <laughs> okay. Bye. to another episode of Diaspora United. You just heard the one and only Courtney Stith live, live at that ridiculous Australia-England match. That was wild. We're going to get into that and a lot more. But first of all, first things first, I'm back in the States. Boo. <laughs> Courtney is still in Australia. How are you doing? Um, I'm good. Working. Um, I'm actually curious of how you're doing working with that jet lag. Um, I'm not excited for that to deal with that probably by the next time that people, well, not the next time people hear from us, but maybe the time after that. Um, I'm really not excited to go back to the U.S. I mean, I'm excited to like get back to like my bed and like my apartment, but I'm like not excited to like be 10 toes down in the U.S. again um, and also have to go back to work. <laughs> so uh feeling bittersweet it's like um it's like a long sunday scaries heading into this final yeah um i as as someone who has recently done the 10 toes down in the states very reluctantly i might add but i am very very thankful and happy with the time that i had because i didn't think i was going to have any um live at this world cup and the games that i saw and experiences were just once in a lifetime stuff so 
Like that's been the mantra of reminding myself of all these things because it's not been fun. Um, that jet lag, I usually don't have jet lag. Like normally whatever time zone it is, I just, my body just adjusts. I don't know how, I don't know why, but I've been to like South Africa and was like, as soon as I got there, good. Came back, as soon as I came back, good. Didn't have any oh, issues. Okay. You know, been, been around to Europe. Like it's, it's normally I'm good. This one was weird. Like I've been waking up at like 4.45 a.m. for no oh. reason, no matter what time I go to bed. And I do my little check on like the world clock thing that I have on my phone that kind of tells me what all the time zones are and what time it is. And 4.45 a.m. Eastern time is not like a wake up time in any time zone that I've been in (laughs) at all. Is that like like, what, like uh, 8.45 p.m. in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it makes absolutely no sense. No sense at all. And, And so, yeah, it's been fun. Uh, to try to readjust. I've just been telling work, like, so I'm here, but also I'm not here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I feel like I turned like 21 or 22 or something. And then like time zones just started hitting me like a brick. Like my body just does not adjust to them at all. And I don't know why it's very confusing. Like actually the last time I went to... (laughs) The last time I went to England, for some wild reason, I had a, like, I didn't catch a red eye, caught, like, a flight during the day, and then slept during it, because I was like, oh, it's kind of like nighttime in England right now, and then landed in England, and was exhausted, but then stayed up for 24 hours straight, because I couldn't fall asleep. <laughs> so now time zones hit me, I know, now time zones hit me just like, like, my first, like, landing in New Zealand, I mean, to be fair, it was rough, because I landed in basically the middle of the night. So I didn't get to see the sun for a long time, which did not help my body acclimate. Uh, no, I just, uh, jet lag just hits me like a stack of bricks every time. Yeah. So you're going to have a fun experience coming back, but no need to think about that now. <laughs> you're still there in Australia. Um, so let's, let's get into it. All we're going to do is we're going to talk about the quarterfinals. We know those been a, a little while ago, but we, have some notes, some things we want to talk about on the games, uh, but we will absolutely focus on breaking down the semifinal games that happened as well. Uh, and then we'll probably take a little break and get into previewing the final, but also want to do a little bit of like framing of this World Cup, because I think that this World Cup has like, even though the end point is very, ugh, where we got Spain versus England, and I'll get into more of why I say, ugh, um, I think most, if you're listening to this podcast, you know why from one side. Uh, but both, I, I want to talk about really like, well, true, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I want to, I want to talk about bigger lessons because I think that there's a lot more than just who ends up in a final. And also my thing with sports is if you're only focusing on the winners, you're missing a shit ton of other important stories. So, uh, we'll talk about that. Courtney, anything else before we get started? Nope. <laughs> Love it. Um, all right. So quarterfinals. Let's see. I'm just going to run through them. Y'all know what happened. Spain uh, beat Netherlands 2-1. to one. Japan, sad, 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 lost to Sweden 1-2. to two. Australia, France played a ridiculous game, had a ridiculous, not, not really a ridiculous game, kind of a ridiculous game, actually, but it was nil-nil, went through extra time, still nil-nil, had the wildest penalty shootout ever. I know that people have been like, is it recency bias to say this? No, it was 20 penalties. That's ridiculous. Um, it was one of the most ridiculous uh, penalty shootouts of all time. 
And, uh, of course, England, Columbia. So basically every game that had goals um, in open, like not open play, but in uh, non-penalties, ended two to one somehow. So that's awkward just looking at the time. Weird. Looking at it right now. Yeah, it's a little strange. But I guess from any of those games, what really stood out to you, Courtney? Um, yeah, some things. I'm mad Japan is out. I think a lot of people are mad Japan is out. Um, but I think, I don't know. If, we know that this is a tournament, right? And not all, the best team doesn't always win the tournament. It's like thinking about like U.S. 2015 was not necessarily the best team found a way to win the tournament, right? Um, but for example, like thinking, I mean, yes, this is recency bias, but like thinking like 2019, U.S. had one of the best squads. So it like also wasn't super surprising that they won because you like in basic football terms, it's like in theory, the the better team should win. But as we've seen, especially throughout this quarterfinals is that that's not true. Um, I'm really mad that Sweden decided to turn up just for one match to knock out Japan and then be basically duds for the rest of it. I was like, you did all of this. I like, are you, are you kidding me? Um, other big thoughts. Uh, I'm bummed Colombia went out. Besides the fact that I wanted to see Lina Caicedo in a World Cup semifinal, I'm potentially World Cup final. Uh, I know for England we're going to get into it later, but it just kind of felt like for a lot of the results they've had, um, not necessarily they've been not skimming by, but like I feel like Colombia might have been maybe the first result that like I don't know what I'm trying to say. Not deserved because it's it's like. During the Columbia game, England for the I feel like for the first time that we've really seen this tournament outside of that what that one game against China like actually played really well. Um, but also to be fair, had a lot of luck thinking about that first goal that uh, Columbia uh, conceded was like sometimes just you know like luck, luck and hard work really win you tournaments. Um, I'm trying to think what was the other. Oh, Australia France was not the worst or the craziest penalty shootout I've witnessed but it's only because i andre i don't know if you remember this but the 29th no maybe it was 2021 so the 2020 or 2021 um europa league final between manchester united and sevilla i don't know if you remember that but the final score of that penalty was literally like 21 to 20 like it was terrible (laughs) it was (laughs) i mean at one point i like got bored in the middle because i was like someone please end this which is actually what I tweeted right before France and <laughs> France Australia. I was like, please just don't make it like this penalty shootout. <laughs> Where, like I literally, I saw them go through the full eleven and twice. It was or almost twice. It was terrible. Um, but yes, uh, yeah. I just feel like the. I'm honestly my overarching thing with the quarterfinals is I'm mad Japan is out and that Sweden is through off like one performance and they didn't also build off that performance in the later stages. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in the third place game, but the fact that they got through and then, like, didn't build on that performance really against Spain, I was, like, annoyed. <laughs> That's how I really feel about the quarterfinals. Yeah, I'm be honest. My, my feeling for the quarterfinals was definitely a bit of annoyance. I think the group stages were dope, and then we've kind of, like, been on an unfortunate, like, downhill trajectory <laughs> in terms of results ever since. And that's been unfortunate to watch. And honestly, so I was at the Sweden-Japan game, and I I was really upset, like, sitting in the stands because I was just like, this is extremely – first of all, I talk shit about Sweden, and, oh, boy, the Swedes do not like me at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> they were, yeah, they were not they happy. They are always in your quote tweets. Yeah, they, they were not happy with me. But this my thing was, and yes, term, tournament football is different, especially knockout stage tournament football is different. You can be really good in like one or two areas, which theirs was set pieces and defending. And they did they even weren't great defending throughout the entire tournament, but they were good in that Japan game. But I'm going to caveat that and say they were good for a half. And I think they were also good because Japan, they were aided by Japan's decision to go with, Akeda's decision to go with, put Junendo on the bench and start Sagita um, in her position. I love Hina Sagita, so don't get me wrong. Like a lot, a lot of people were, you know, kind of picking her out, but she did struggle to contain that right side. And then also she wasn't in the positions to receive the ball, to receive passes that they were expecting because Junindo had always been there and she's just a naturally more advanced player. She likes to get higher up the pitch a little bit. And I thought that that really kind of meant, cause there were the first half, I think there were three or four times where the ball just rolled out of play because Sagita was maybe like a step or two away from being able to get to it. And then Japan just stopped going to that side. And that really shrunk the pitch. That made it a big problem because in order to kind of negate what Sweden was doing to them, you needed to like move the ball quickly to the other side of the pitch. You needed to keep swinging it back and forth. And every time they tried, they couldn't do it. So when Junendo came on, that's when everything shifted because then all of a sudden, you know, uh, Japan, what they, they had a penalty that they missed. They hit the bar twice, once from a free kick, like, they were all over Sweden, and I feel like if they would have started the match that way, um, and specifically with Junendo in the in the starting lineup, there ain't no way that Sweden wins that match. As it is, they still were holding on until the very end, and that was really frustrating to see because, like you said, Sweden didn't actually, like, throughout the course of the tournament, they never really built on their basis of play. They were going to be try to be defensively solid because they are tall and long, and they can really disrupt things in midfield. They can capitalize on set pieces, but they never added or grew other elements of their game, except for maybe like one, I think they had one good like attacking move that they ended up scoring from in the group stages. And apart from that, everything else was just kind of either clumsier from set pieces or whatever. To be honest, their goal against um, Spain was good, but just getting ahead of ourselves. So yeah, that game frustrated the hell out of me. my, my thing with England Columbia was just like a bit of the same deal. Like I, I and I kind of get why you were struggling to be like, you know, is it fair to say England didn't deserve like their performance or whatever? Like it's just hard to kind of frame this England team of performance because overall they're in a World Cup final. But that's really like judging everything by the result. Like things happened. They were stressed the hell out versus Haiti. Like Haiti should have gotten at least a point from that game. We've talked about this before. It was just a really ill-advised and bad handball that you usually don't get ever in, a, in any sort of game at this level and that gave them a goal. They did not earn anything in that game, and Haiti earned a ton. They should have had at least a point, at least a point. could have beaten England no problem, easily. Nigeria also could have beaten England. If they score an open player, they score in um, – I keep saying open play. <laughs> they score in you know, normal time or even extra time. England never looked like they were going to score. Um, they had some decent chances, but Nigeria was all over them. They knew how to press them. They knew how to frustrate them. 
Uh, and I think Serena didn't do a great job in her coaching in that one, to be honest, because they were really targeting Lauren James and not letting her get the ball. And of course, we know she did the naughty, um, didn't, stepping on the good doctor. You can't do that. Not um, did the naughty. Yeah, exactly. She did a naughty. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, it was just like, okay, if that's what they're doing, then like, use that to your advantage. You know, if they're man marking Lauren James, like pull her wide, create space in the middle for other players to exploit and get on the ball and all of that stuff. But they never really did that, which was just very confusing. Um, and then to see this match versus Columbia, it's just like the difference between the teams is just like pressure can get to you. And the biggest thing is like, don't make it easy for your opposition. Like don't, don't like be mistake free. And I think that's England's greatest strength throughout this tournament. Aside from that game versus China, where they really exploded offensively, their biggest thing is they don't beat themselves. They're not making those mistakes. They're not giving up easy opportunities or penalties or whatever. And Colombia, honestly, you mentioned the first goal. That was definitely goalkeeper error. That was just calamity. That should not have happened, especially because Colombia scored first in that game. And you go to halftime with them down, angle it down 1-0, that ramps up the pressure, and then maybe you can hit them on the break. Or mm -hmm. they, you know, the pressure gets to them, and they actually do make a mistake. But then, like, I also think the second goal was a bit of a mistake, because if you watch the goalkeeper's positioning, she's just way too concerned with, like, the near post. And there was no way, and her feet were not, like, not set, like, to be able to get that shot. That shot was not perfectly placed it wasn't like right to the side netting behind like the far post it could have been saved could have been kept out of the goal so that was just real disappointing to see especially because I really wanted Columbia to continue playing in this ugh, ugh, pain and then that I, I but I do think that we did get a few good moments in the Australia France shootout that was fun that was fun the reason why I say it's great like it may not have been the longest ever but it was definitely the longest at a World Cup, men's or women's. And what made me, like, the quality of the penalties was great from so many players. I mean, Karchawi hitting the underside of the bar, Ellie Carpenter hitting the post and having it go in, that some players hitting the post and it going out, some of the crazy saves, like Mackenzie Arnold with the double save, um, and, and then the glare back to the referee because the VAR had to redo it. <laughs> she had to save it again. That was just extreme, an extremely dope moment. Uh, and also, you know, your boy, your boy, Hervé Renard, uh, Fabio uh, in the house. Um, <laughs> he He's making that, that <laughs> goal. Fabio. <laughs> I'm calling him French Fabio. <laughs> French Fabio in the house. Uh, him making that goalkeeper switch was just a, a gangster move. And it paid off. She was a beast. That one-handed save she made, I was like, yo, why doesn't she start? <laughs> well, so th this is the thing about the that shootout, right? And yes, it, like, in terms of greatest shootout in World Cup history, yes. Um, and, the, and it's so funny because I think about, I mean, well, we now have a whole bunch of new listeners, so I don't know if people know that we are Chelsea fans. Um, but, like, we've seen that happen on the men's side a few times between, I mean, now neither of them are at the club, but between Keppa and Mendy. Um, and so, and it's always a question of, like, does this, basically, it's like, if you win the shootout, this is a good decision. If you lose the shootout, it's a bad decision to swap your goalkeeper. Um, however, 
The thing is, they lost the shootout, but it was still a really good decision. She saved two penalties and kept yeah, France in it. Great. Like, it was really, really smart. Um, like, for uh, now French Fabio, I guess is what we're calling him. Um, I call him the most, literally the most French man to ever exist in the history of the world. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, like, insane that we saw that happen. But, all, yeah, those, I mean, the saves, the glare, that Karchawi goal almost made me end it. Um, yeah, that penalty shootout was also like Sam Kerr's penalty where she stepped up and looked. So, I mean, I'm happy that like she made it, but man, was she nervous. She had um, me so scared. I was like, Sam, don't do it. I was like, I think Sam's going to, I like, out of everyone, I was like, Sam, please don't miss. Like, just don't, please do not miss this. She's not a great um, penalty taker anyway. And as nervous as she was, I was like, oh, this is bad. This is, this is bad. <laughs> well, I know because people don't um, – I don't think a lot of people necessarily know that, like, in for Chelsea, she does not – like, she's probably, like – I'm going to guess Sam is honestly probably, like, seventh in line to take penalties for Chelsea. Like, she she generally never takes them. Um, I'm Obviously, I'm happy it went in. But, <laughs> yeah, for a moment, I was like, I am – Dressed about this penalty shootout, but also with England Columbia, one thing I do want to talk about, and like, I know we're gonna hit on overarching themes, but to me, with these semifinals, it also really, really shows the difference between teams who who get federation support or like consistently get federation support and teams who don't. And we know that you know, um, I think it was maybe right before the tournament started, uh, the the Lionesses came out against their FA saying that, you know, they didn't, weren't agreed to the same bonus structure as the men for like the men's bonuses from their world cup this past or last year. Anyway, I, my brain short circuited, uh, what, what days and months and weeks are. And, you know, Colombia has been in a fight with the Federation. I want to say for almost three years now. Um, the video that I tweeted was, I believe from 2021, maybe, um, of the Colombian players coming out against their federation for treatment, support, um, a lot like a lot of the things that a lot of the players at the World Cup were fighting for against their federation as well. But yeah, to me, it just really like England being calm in moments that matter is to me the reason why they're in the final. Um, obviously, Colombia making a mistake and making it harder for themselves does not help, but. I, one thing that I've just kind of seen from these past, I'm going to say, really from the round of 16 on, is that even when Nigeria had them shook at times, they still never faltered and, you know, were able to get through a penalty shootout where your first penalty kick taker misses. Um, I just feel like England now has that quote-unquote winning mentality, uh, and that's, and I mean, it's really showing for them right now because it, it's almost like, I mean, I was at that Columbia game and while it was, like, nervy at moments, like, it it's almost like the players didn't necessarily falter. Like, they just kind of knew that they would find a way to get through, um, which is, I mean, surprise, I've never seen something like that in person, but I feel like that's the one thing that's really showing through is that they're very much mistake-free um, and with that have some luck on their side, which is really proving to be successful. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I'm 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 slightly disappointed in Colombia because as you mentioned like growing through the tournament, I think that yes, you don't want to be naive against England, but with them missing Lauren James, they're missing probably the threat that like their biggest threat um and especially in terms of how you defend that person. 
I think they had a solid enough back line. They had solid enough midfielders to match up to England and to actually like go forward and take the game to them a bit more. But I think they kind of played like the aura of England a bit more than they played the actual players of England and the performances of England that England have had. Because, yeah, they don't make mistakes, but you can put pressure on them. Uh, we saw Haiti do it. Haiti put a lot of pressure on them. They just didn't get the goal uh, that they deserved. But Colombia could have. They had Linda Caicedo, uh, um, um, Catalina Uzme as well. Like, they have players, Lacey Santos. They have players that can, like, ball out and do some good things 1v1 or in, in conjunction with one another, like that the goal they scored against Jamaica, which was just gorgeous. So, like, yeah, I was – I. And I don't want to, like, talk too down on Columbia because I think their performances overall were amazing. I just hope that when they're in that position next time, and we know how talented that squad is now, right? Like, the world, rec- like, was introduced to Columbia. Like, this, yes, this is a very talented team, that, and there will be a next time that they are advanced in a tournament. I'm hoping that they're, like, more comfortable. And I think it goes back to what you said. It's just England going through the Euros and kind of knowing how to deal with these situations their biggest thing is they just have remained calm and not beating themselves. And that goes a long way in these tournaments. And I wish it didn't, <laughs> but, but oh well. Um, anything else before we move to the semifinals? Just uh, want to give a shout out to Salma Paraguayo. Or, yeah, Paraguayo. Sorry. Salma Paraguayo. Um, don't come for my pronunciation. I know it's bad. I haven't spoken Spanish in a while. Um, but, like, I... For those who don't, I mean, I hope you know, but in case you don't know, and also you're a new listener to this podcast, which is potentially possible because we talked about this before, um, Spain is in a terrible fight with their federation. Um, We can link to some articles in the show notes, uh, but the quick summarization is that is that, uh, you know, 15 players came out against the federation for a variety of issues, Um, but a lot of them honestly just or like the easiest way to summarize it is that a lot of it just went back to Jorge Vilda, who's currently their coach um, and the toxic work environment that he created. One thing that really, really it still sticks out in my head is that on international trips, they weren't, or really any trips, they weren't allowed to like the players were not allowed to lock their doors at their hotels before Vilda came to check them. Like, excuse, like these are, these are grown ass adults. Like, and I mean, that's just like, and that's within a, a a host of things that players have said, but that's just one thing that consistently sticks out to me. It's like something that has always stayed in my head. And so 15 players came out basically asking for obviously better working conditions. And I want to say those, those 15 players, you know, missed the February international window. I believe they also missed April. And then basically the Spanish Federation came out against the players said they needed to apologize and, you know, write personal apology letters if they want to, you know, be back on the team, which is, I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous. It's condescending. It's like (laughs) what these players have to get through um, every single day to just live their dream of playing professional soccer, making it to a world trip is absolutely ridiculous. And so like, that's a lot of the noise around why people in this final do not want Spain to win because you do not want to basically give legitimacy to an abusive coach. And also a coach who's fundamentally also not good at his job. Because I think, especially in sports, one thing I realized 
is people will let abuse happen if you are winning, which is a com- maybe we should have a longer conversation about why that's also extremely terrible. But it's like Vilda was abusive. Spain wasn't getting results anyway. Like, and so players didn't did not very specifically call for Vilda to be fired, but they wanted improvements behind the scenes. But the Spanish Federation claimed otherwise, and then you know fully put their support behind him. Going into this final note, like <laughs> really a lot of people don't want Spain to win. A few people, especially one of our faves, Chris and Press on the recap podcast said that potentially winning could give like uh, the Spanish players a bit of leverage, um, which I, I, I kind of understand if you think about it, going back to 2019 in the U.S., suing their federation and then winning the 2019 World Cup. Um, but yeah, that's just for our new listeners. That's basically what's going on with Spain. It's absolutely terrible, and it's <laughs> it's why I want the game to be forfeited because I don't want England to win, and I especially don't want Spain to win. Um, but yeah, that's just some of the writing on the walls for Spain, which is why it's sometimes a little bit complicated. Of, for example, seeing a young black Spanish player like Salma Paraguelo um, go and get these game-winning goals, and you know, really shine on the world stage, and she's doing it with an abusive coach and a non and a problematic federation behind her. Yeah. So that's, and I appreciate you running through that because it is a lot and it has been one of the most disgusting and annoying things has been people who don't do the research, don't Google, don't do any reading. And you're supposed to, when you're going to be, you know, producing segments or speaking in front of like giving a microphone that has access to millions and an audience of millions that you need to be correct in your and what you say. You need to be honest. You need to provide context and the full story of things. And instead, they're just praising Jorge Vilda blindly, as in like, oh look, you know, finally he's gotten Spain, you know, to to get no, 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 no. We have plenty of documented history of him being a very poor coach. You also know the vibes are still bad there because we saw the clip which went around, went around Twitter of Pateas coming off and kind of swiping her hand away from someone in, on the staff after she was subbed off. That's not a happy, and, and because she's been benched, she's been started, she's been benched more than she started, especially the knockout rounds. And I know that she's probably quite frustrated, and I also know the environment probably still isn't great. Um, the reason why, this, this is the dumb thing for me, is that you can see why Spain are having more are having better results. First of all, I think the caliber of opposition they faced is they got lucky. I believe if they would have faced Japan again, they'd be out. Like they would absolutely be out because even though I wouldn't expect another four nil, I do not think they could have done anything to hurt Japan. Japan had them. They can't change their style of play, which has been their biggest problem. The one pro- like the one player that changes their style of play is Selma Paraguelo. Like she has been mm-hmm. what they've needed for years. She forces them to play more direct, whether she's playing out wide or whether she comes in as a nine, she forces them to play direct. I think it was in this Sweden game, the semifinal, she got on as a sub in the second half and had more shots than the entire, like she had the most shots. She forces them to play, to play um, direct. She had more shots in her time as a sub than they had the entire first half. And they dominated possession. I think they had nearly like 70% possession in the first half. Like, 
she forces them to play differently. And that's always what they've needed when like the, when the passing thing doesn't work and you come up against organized defenses who move side to side and still are able to cut off those, those gaps. Vilda has never been able to find, find an answer and he's not actually finding an answer. It's just that they have a player that they can turn to as a substitute. Like she's the answer. She's what they've needed. And it didn't like, he took her off against Japan and, and made Japan like, was like, okay, cool. Like that was the biggest threat. And now we don't have to worry about that anymore, but Japan also handled that threat. So this is why I'm saying like, from a coaching perspective, he's gotten lucky in terms of the competition that he's faced. And it's not like he's done anything extremely clever with his team. They're playing the same way they always play, but now they have a player who forces them to play slightly differently than they want to play, than they're used to playing. And that's been having results and been leading to results. And I just like the Vilda appreciation thing has been one of the grossest things of this World Cup, um, which, again, don't watch Fox Soccer if you have access to NBC Universo or Telemundo, please, please, please watch that. But um, yeah, it's been from some journalists. It's been from some people on on TV as well. That it's just like it's just gross. Um, yeah, like <laughs> that's the thing with built. Like they're putting. It's like the not to go back to the U.S., but and not saying the the situations are the same either. But it's like when the U.S. was on that long winning streak and everyone was like, oh, my God, Vlaco was such an incredible coach. And we're like, really, it's just Kristen Press or Mal Pugh or sorry, well, Mal Pugh at the time and then turned to Mal Swanson or Sophia Smith or Katerina Macario just like turning up and playing really well and like basically like saving the team. Like it's literally the same thing. Like <laughs> like the the approach that Spain has to this tournament, like, and I will say, I think not, maybe not having Puteas necessarily start has allowed Aitama, Aitana Bonmati to really flourish and kind of take the game in her hands, um, which I definitely think we saw in that game against Switzerland, who should have never made it to the round of 16. Sorry, I have to throw that into literally every single episode um, because they should not have made it. I'm mad about group A still. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like Salma is just a, a different is a different type of player, and also I think a player that I have said several times, especially for European defenses, is a type of player that most European defenses cannot handle. They, for the most part, do not know what to do with a player who is super quick, s- smart, and clever with their runs, and also isn't afraid to like hit something from distance. And I've said it over and over and over again, especially as we've seen like. Uh, European nations play teams from South America, from Africa, like, <laughs> they really don't know what to do or how how to properly defend when players are just, like, running at them. It's almost like, it's like the 1v1 defense. Um, like, they're used to, like, 1v1 defense out of, you know, mostly European players, which players from outside of Europe, like, will can run at you and cut and are not just pace and power, as especially talking about some commentators like to say and so yeah they just like don't know what to do to like do with players like that and Salma's a player that has that profile and so that's also like that's to me why she's been saving this team uh, like more times than not yeah and it popped up again in uh in the in the Spain Sweden semifinal which was just 
Whew, that was a tough game to watch because Sweden can't really Terrible. connect anything. Yeah, that game was awful. Sweden can't really, again, like we said, I know the, the country of Sweden hates me already, but I will continue to say that they were big mid uh, throughout this, and they never really grew in terms of being able to attack. So that, of course, made facing a team like Spain, and people were like, you know, styles make fights. This is going to be such a great game. And I was like, absolutely no, it's not going to be a great game. Like Sweden can't do anything to counter what Spain does. So Spain's just going to have the ball. But Sweden can play obstinate enough defense to where Spain's going to be struggling until Selma gets on. And that's pretty much what happened. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there, there were there was an exciting end to the game. The final 10 minutes had three goals, which was ridiculous. But um, and then. It was actually kind of funny that Sweden scored, and then, like, right after that, they conceded the goal, which, again, Musevich, listen, Courtney said we're, we're Chelsea fans, and this is true. My whole thing with Musevich was, like, we've seen your movies. We know how you roll. You're a good keeper, but you're not, like, all-star caliber yet, right? You're not, like, world-class caliber yet. And so, like, when she went off against the U.S., I was like, okay, cool. Like, I, again, for me – that was completely fine because I didn't expect this U.S. team to go far anyway because of Blackco and all the reasons we've talked about across multiple podcasts. So people kept trying to dunk on me like as being an angry American just because she did so well against the U.S. I was like, y'all, that was like that was that needed to happen. <laughs> like, I'm not mad about that. I'm not mad about that at all. But from a Chelsea perspective, it's like, yo, if that's your level now, let that be your level now. One, we would love it to be because, you know, we are looking for a new keeper. We basically signed every keeper that was available this window. Um, and we need to have somebody step into that role once AKB is gone and she's on the other side of 30. So, like, we do need somebody well, to step up. Will she ever up. leave? I don't believe That's she the will. Question. Who knows? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it was just like, okay, Musevich. And then to let that shot in from Carmona, I know it was a – to me it was, a, it was an unexpected shot. It was a – Shot from a kind of short corner routine, which hilarious that a set piece like a corner is what it takes Sweden out, given that they've scored from so many of them themselves. Uh, so a little bit of hilarious poetic justice there um, for them. But like that was not a shot that should have gotten to the back of the net. It was pretty much at her. I think the ball did swerve a little bit. But given the other saves that she'd made this tournament, I was like, you got to palm that over the bar. Like you can, you, that's not that's not a shot you should be conceding if you're at that level that it appeared that she had like reached. So maybe she continues just a bad moment. We'll see what she's like with Chelsea, but this was like, I don't know. This is just my beef with this entire Sweden team that like, they almost tried to like, it's not really like shortcut or cheat or whatever, but they just had like incomplete. <laughs> they kept turning in like incomplete assignments and like getting by on like defaults or technicalities or something. I don't know what, I can't find a metaphor for it, but it just felt like it was just frustrating. I feel like if they were, if they had a tougher group, um, I feel like if they had, you know, again, that Japan game, if they, if the approach from Japan was different, I think they lose that game easily. I thought they were going to lose at three nil. That did not happen clearly, but like, I'm just, I had low expectations. And the one time I root for them, this is what they do. They let Spain get to a World Cup final. I hate it here. I also hate it here because y'all, we must. Andre, I know you tweeted it. I've been in true support how we must avenge Japan. How we need to avenge Japan because 
How dare y'all play like that and then get into a mid-off? How dare y'all? <laughs> um, Andre, looking at the other side of the bracket to... Oh, actually, sorry. I had a question for you for looking at the other side. Do you think if France beats Australia, France makes it to the final? No, I still think England beats them. Oh, really? Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I think if... I think I just think French Fabio needs a bit more time. That's all. I, I think he had, <laughs> he had good ideas and he kind of knows, but they are missing some pretty key pieces. Like if they had Katoto, I might change my mind. If they had brought mm-hmm. Amandine Henri and she could actually play, um, that might change my mind. But like, I just think they needed something else because they didn't quite like. You could see it truly, truly a lot of talent mm-hmm. as we've known, but like they needed a bit more time to be able to handle, like know how to handle situations, know how they were going to react in certain situations. And I think just England knowing how to do those things inherently now, like that would have shown again, which pains me to say, but yeah, I think England beats France. See, that's fascinating because I actually think, I, I agree with you, but I also think thinking about Bacha and Karchawi against Lucy Bronze, that's on the same side of the field, right? I think it is. Front. Yeah, I believe that's on the same side of the field. Um, I think France is, we thought, I mean, England get torched by really good wing play against Nigeria and Haiti. So, yeah, I think, I actually think France would have snuckily done it. Also, one thing I wanted to say about Australia is, one, I love how much Australia, the country, is going up for the Matildas. And I was actually talking to some folks last night after this equality summit that I went to yesterday. Um, shout out to Women in Soccer for inviting me and the U.S. State Department for hosting. Um, and so I was talking to some Australian journalists and they were saying that, that uh, Australia's win against France really helped or like really propelled the state of, um, I think, uh, women's football in Australia and how it, that was like that winning the penalty shootout a made a lot of people fall in love with the Matildas, which I personally love. Um, but also it was kind of that big, it was kind of like a big watershed shed moment. Um, and that, I mean, as we know, like, I think it was like almost half of Australia turned in tuned into that match, which is kind of insane or maybe that was their match against England. Um, but, you know, talking with some, some folks, one thing that I was, I like kept asking them and I was like, you know, we saw Australia play a very specific way this tournament, like, especially without Sam Kerr, they were sitting in a 4-2-2. Why is it that you get to this big moment, like, you know, this big part on the world stage, and um, their coach <laughs> decides to switch to a 4-3-3, which I was deeply confused about, um, given that how, like, given how good they have just been in that 4-2-2. And I know that you, you know, bringing in Sam Kerr obviously will change some things, but it's like... The 4-4-2? You're leaving out. Oh, my gosh. It's 4-2-2. We're playing 9-9 now. Um, yes. So they switch from a, you know, they switch from a 4-4-2 to a 4-3-3. And I was really confused about that, um, given we saw them, for the most part, uh, I mean, not really outside of that game against... Nigeria, like, well, it wasn't perfect defending. You know, they were really succeeding in a 4-4-2. Um, we know that Alana Kennedy was missing. At the time, it was said she was missing due to illness and she wouldn't be attending the match. Um, actually, a few moments ago, they came out and said that she's now in concussion protocols. So I'm thinking that illness might have been, like, early concussion syndrome. 
um, which is deeply unfortunate that she's now missing the third place match as well. Um, but yeah, it's just like, it's almost, it, to me, it was like a don't, like if it, it ain't broken, don't fix it. Like <laughs> these players have been playing in a four four two, and yeah, to be fair, it's without Sam Kerr, but I think even adding Sam Kerr back into a four four two or making it like a four four one and one, like there's, I think there are ways you can tweak the system to help get Sam Kerr back into the game, but without switching the entire system. Because I think when I was at the, when I was at the stadium and seeing how they were playing in a four three three, it just like was not really working. Um, and I don't know if that's because like sitting in a in a four three three instead of a four two two, it's um they decided to really make a lot of their attacking play just through Carpenter and Rasso, where in the games before we saw that obviously Carpenter and Rasso were also getting into it and getting into the attack, but we saw all like a a much large or a much more balanced attack where we saw Catley getting into play, Caitlin Ford getting into play, um, and really helped driving the team forward offensively. And so I was you know, I was really, really surprised about that of why that change was made. And it's funny, after the first goal went in they did basically they went back to a four two two and I thought they, you know, were playing a little bit better, but yeah, I was just I felt like Tony might have um I called <laughs> I made it a verb of like pepping it. Or like I think he just pepped it a little bit for the final or sorry, for the semifinal. Um but also I was there in person and the Australia fans were absolutely fantastic. I don't think I think I actually might have hearing loss after hearing the crowd chant for that like Scream for that Sam Kerr goal, which was absolutely electric to see in person. And it's funny talking to other journalists who were there who had other vantage points that, like, apparently a lot of Aussie journalists were shouting, like, pass the ball, pass the ball, like, when Sam was <laughs> running at net because Caitlin Ford was wide open. Do they know who that and, is? And I was like, <laughs> first of all, it's Sam Kerr. Second of all, it's Sam Kerr against Mary Earps. She's always mm-hmm. going to score a royalty for club or country. She's going to do it. And I, and I knew as soon as Millie Bright, honestly, which I think she should have immediately tackled Sam, but she didn't. She gave her, like, a bit of space. I was like, oh, Sam's scoring a worldie. And that's, that was an absolute worldie. That goal was absolutely fantastic. And I have never seen a stadium erupt like that. It was, what, almost 76,000 people. I have never heard... So, like the crescendo of noise, the joy, the jubilation in that moment. I've like truly never heard anything like that in my, like, and, and I look, I've been like, I've been to camp now. <laughs> like I've been to like huge soccer stadiums. And I've, that was something like I've genuinely never experienced like that before. Yeah. I am like, this has been in many ways, like a deeply cursed tournament for Sam Kerr, like after all of the buildup and she gets an injury in training just before the start of it and has to miss basically what she missed all the group stages. I think she came on for the first time as a sub. Um, mm-hmm. Was it the last group stage game or was it in the round of 16? I can't remember, but it, it was, was in the round of 16, but she was available yeah. for the, she was available for the last group stage game. But, and I think it was the type of thing of if maybe if Canada was giving them a tough time, they would put her in, but they very clearly did not have a tough time against Canada. Yeah, they did not. Um, so yeah, that was. I'm I'm super glad she had that moment. I know she'll she probably has many frustrations and regrets about like how this 
like unfolded, especially given that she missed a couple other really good chances. And I think a sharp, this is the kind of the thing, like Sam Kerr can always pull out something wild, like that first goal, but like there is a level of sharpness that just like playing consistently puts you at. And that header and that free hit she kind of had after the corner, those basically an informed Sam Kerr, both of those are goals, but even one of those would have been, at least one of those would have gone in. Andre, I have a question for you, because I saw that in person, and I don't think, I know everyone was saying, so I saw both chances, and to me, I think that header chance is a much harder chance to score than, like, the that chance off the corner, I definitely think she should have scored it, like, it should have been in the back of the net over the top of the bar, but it's it's funny seeing how people reacted to that header chance, because to me, that is a much, much harder chance to score, and it even an in an inform Sam Kerr doesn't might not score that because that ball was was an outswinger what from the from the left sorry I'm doing my L hands that ball was an outswinger coming from the left and Sam was making a diagonal run coming from the right and where Mary Earps at least this is what I'm remembering off the top of my head where Mary Earps position was she was like and almost in the center of the goal, almost like leaning a little bit towards her right. So it's not like Sam could easily just like direct the ball into the side. So I think she was trying to hit it with like the back of her head because of the, like the swing of where the ball was coming and also the, the curve of her run. And so to me, that was like a much, like, I think I tweeted like, Oh, that's a big chance for Sam Kerr. But also I was like, like looking back at it, I was like, that's a really tough chance to score, trying to score a goal with the, top or really the back of her head I agree that it is a difficult header especially because it was such a perfect ball from Mary Fowler that it had to like dip perfectly for you to even have a chance to get your head on it and just like taking a gamble on that is something that would maybe like surprise some strikers that they actually got their like the ball actually got to their head but Sam Kerr is Sam Kerr and so, yeah, I agree. Like, XG-wise, it probably was a bit lower percentage chance than I think most people um, thought, especially real-time, because it just looked like she missed the header or hit it too hard and hit it too high. But I think Sam Kerr is great in the air, just absolutely great in the air. And I think an informed Sam Kerr realizes that where the ball is coming, um, what, how her run is going, that she doesn't need power in that. She just needs placement. I think if she just does a glancing header – and that sends that ball downward, Mary Earps doesn't get close to it. Um, mm, as I, and I think true. that it would have been difficult, but I think that's what Sam Kerr does. Um, so for me, I think that's why I look at it as a big chance. If it was somebody else, maybe it was like Caitlin Ford or you know anyone else running in there, Haley Rasso, I'd have been like, yeah, that's a tough one. But for Sam mm. Kerr, I was like, oh, she, she probably scores that one eight out of ten times, I would say. Oh, fascinating. No, I, no, I I know what you mean. I just feel like that was, like, even a super, and I mean, like, in form, fully fit Sam Kerr is a revelation, but even then I was like, like, to me that was one of those where I looked back at it and I was like, she could have scored this, but also her missing it, like, to, like when I think about, for example, I mean, the two chances you talk about, like, this header and then that ball falling to her off the corner, which she should have scored, like, I'm like, Sam Kerr scores that ball off the corner nine times out of ten this header is like a little bit less so but just because of the like it's one of those goals where it's like it comes off and it is a wonder goal but then it doesn't come off 
and people were like, oh, big chance miss, but then you look back at it, and you're like, eh, really kind of a really difficult way to convert, but yeah, I know that she will definitely be um, unhappy with herself for missing those chances, because really, I mean, especially, because I'm trying to think, when when did that header happen? That header happened after the first goal, but England hadn't yeah. really been, like, to me, Australia was putting pressure then, but it wasn't like the the same the same mounting pressure that happened before. I think either the two one or the three one. I think that second chance was at was to equalize at two two. Yeah, because then they immediately scored after that. Um, but yeah, but I mean, even then, I think Australia has a lot to hang their hats on. That like they didn't have perfect performances this World Cup, but I I mean, especially this semi-final performance like I to me they completely dominated England in that second half but also that performance against Canada was one of the best team performances we saw this World Cup yeah and I mean in terms of building something this is why I said you know off top that I think if you only focus on the winners you miss a shit ton of the other stories that are there and I think Australia deserves to be a big story like yeah it would have been great as a host country to get to the final and to win it but they got as far as they they what this is they never been to a semifinal before at a World Cup so this was great. Um, they did the majority of it without Sam Kerr. She scored her first goal in the in the um, in this World Cup semifinal. It was a banger. So they got that moment. So like the pop from the crowd that you mentioned, that's just a once in a lifetime like dope moment. And I love all the videos of it from people watching outside the stadium, at other stadiums, and other places around Australia. That moment was so dope. Like, that made me, like, legit emotional. It was so, so good. And I just think they got to, like, continue to carry that because we see the talent in this team. This team is a very good team, and I think they could have results outside of World Cups. I know because of their, you know, geography, they're not usually, like, they're not going to be at a Euros or whatever. They're going to, they're not going to be playing this kind of, you know, competition um, frequently or as frequently as maybe teams in Europe do or the U.S. does, but I still think that I would like to see this Australia team, even though it's a hell of a travel kind of schedule to play other places or to have somebody come and play them, I want to see them continue to put themselves on the level of when they play friendlies, like go ahead, play England again, you know, play Brazil, play the U.S., like keep doing those things because I think the way that they built up for this tournament really helped them especially adjusting to not having Sam Kerr. Like that was not the Mm -hmm. way this World Cup was supposed to go for them, but they managed it very well. Uh, And when they got her in, there were some, you know, tactical wobbly moments, as you mentioned, but they kind of also figured it out. Um, And I do think they can be frustrated, obviously, because 3-1, I think, is a scoreline that flatters England. Um, And I think it's a bit harsh on... Australia could have seen them winning this game. I kind of feel like it's more of a 2-1 England win than than 3-1, but still, I I still think that, like, I want to see Australia continue to to push forward. Like, uh, you know, Sam Kerr mentioned afterwards that, you know, she's she's been quite bummed by it, but hopefully she can reflect on the moment that she gave the entire country and kind of use it, continue to use it to, like, springboard because she did mention that there needs to be more funding, more grassroots uh, things in Australia because it is, you know, women's football. Football is not like the biggest sport there. They have like their Aussie rules mm-hmm. thing. They have rugby. Yeah. They have cricket. Like there are Australian a lot of things football. in the way. Yeah, that which is hilarious. But um, yeah, so they got a lot of things in the way. And 
they do need their federation to continue to push because this is like this is the moment like if it ain't gonna happen now it ain't gonna happen and hopefully they can they can live up to it because there's some ballers that come from australia and we saw a lot of them and chelsea might be signing another we'll see i'm excited about that yeah and i also (laughs) just want to give a shout to mary fowler who i think even though the team didn't have the best performance and i've and in the first half i don't she had a few misplaced passes but in the second half she really started turning up and i don't think it necessarily got the attention yeah. She deserved where she was so good in that second half. There was one point where I saw her dribble around four players, and there were literally – I want to see if they're on Getty. There were several moments where she was on the ball, and there were literally four English defenders around her. Yeah. Like, it was – She's so calm <laughs> in those situations, too. She's very good at getting out of them as well. Yeah, like, she was just – she was so good. And I just want to give a shine to her um, because I think she had a had a really good – tournament and I think um maybe it just got overshadowed a little bit um but Andre are you ready to take a quick break and then talk about the final let's do it okay now we have well I was gonna say we have one game left we have two you know we kind of forget about that third place game because honestly they should probably stop doing those hot take anyway what um, that is a hot take (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's not like the Olympics. You don't really get medals, so, like, it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, it may matter for cert- certain teams, but I also think, like, you don't – the the vibe of those games is usually one of frustration um, and kind of annoyance that teams have to play with it. You know, they were just crying on the pitch, like, days ago, and now they have to play for something. You know, they're not really going to get a trophy. I don't know. I just think the motivation is kind of wrong, and I just kind of, like – my vibe is kind of like let the players deal with the loss uh, and getting uh, missing their dream of like getting to a World Cup final. And, you know, like we, we don't need to put them through another 90 minutes. But, you know, that, that's me. But it's fine. Um, perhaps, though, game matters. if Australia wins, then maybe it matters. If Sweden wins, then that's going to be a disappointing way for Australia. to <laughs> if, if, if Sweden wins, it does not matter. If Australia wins, it's the most important game of the tournament. Uh, that game is Saturday, uh, 4 a.m. Eastern time, if you are here. I don't know what that is in Australia and New Zealand, but whatever. Um, uh, so that's 6 p.m. Australia time. Well, all right. 6 p.m. Sydney time. There you go. Yeah, Australia has multiple time zones. It's wild. Um, it is wild. And then the big one, World Cup final, 6 a.m. on Sunday, uh, Spain versus England. So we've already talked about Jorge Vilda and why we don't really want Spain to win because the main thing, like, I get the balance. And, and I also kind of want to call out some things that I've also been seeing on Twitter. Some people are kind of, like, calling out the players and saying, like, that they're, they're, you know, like, their betrayal or whatever. They don't deserve this because they betrayed the players who decided to stay. Like, it's messy. I get that. And I also wouldn't, like, if that was coming from players who decided to stay home, uh, who weren't selected for the World Cup, I I get it. Like, I get that frustration, but I don't think that telling players that they're basically like traitors is a good move. Um, I think that that situation is messy, um, as we know, but I know the end result is, and this may already be the case with them even getting to the final, but hell, if they win a World Cup, that's absolutely going to be cemented, is that this federation is hard-headed as fuck. And they are absolutely not going to learn any lessons. In fact, they're going to double down 
And that's why, like, even though Kristen Press said that she thinks she hopes that winning would do it, I think maybe it's that the players would have more of a platform to speak out. Maybe they would be listened to a bit more by journalists and the people, like they'd have the ear of people in Spain a bit more. And maybe if they're able to convince the case of like, we did this in spite of, if they're able to position it like that, then maybe it forces the federation to change. But internally, that federation is going to feel like they made the right decision all along. And that's what really makes this game feel real icky for me from a Spanish perspective. From an English perspective, it's just that it's coming home bullshit. That's it. <laughs> like It's just <laughs> like, I want good things for Lauren James. I'm glad she's going to be able to play in this game, even though I know she probably shouldn't. Like, that probably should have been a three-match ban, but whatever. Um, but, yeah, like I've got players on England that I like. I, I, I appreciate them. I like Serena as a coach. So, like, nothing personal, but that is coming home bullshit. Ugh. Yeah, um, yeah. The what Christopher said is, and I mean, I, like I am not an elite athlete. Like I don't know what it's like to go and represent my country. There are several things that these players know that we will literally never know, and also how potentially these like yes. how these federations work, um, and things like that. I really hope. I mean, but it's also it's funny because it's like we speak about the like the Spanish Federation being hard headed, and it's just like. <laughs> which of these federations really isn't at this point like i mean i think about like france and wendy being like hi i'm your greatest (laughs) greatest player to ever grace uh the women's team and i'm stepping down and like that's what it took for them to move basically and it's i mean also if you're thinking like i don't think anyone in this world who like knows stuff about women's soccer probably doesn't know who wendy renard is you know and so it's like and I, I mean, I'm thinking more philosophically of like, I don't exactly know, you know, what this will mean for like, potentially what winning would mean for these players. And also hearing like that, I guess a lot of the media in Spain is praising Vilda for his tactics and stuff like that, which I'm like, Girly Pops, what are you doing? And so like, maybe even getting to this final helps the players get their message out more. But yeah, I'm, I personally am like, there are so many things that we do not know. And I think, and like just touching on your point, Andre, like if it is, if it's one thing, if like, for example, Mappy Leon comes out and says that, and it just feels differently, I guess, coming from people who aren't necessarily in the room. Yeah. But I also understand people not wanting England to win because they don't want to root for their colonizer. It is a colonizer classico, unfortunately. <laughs> Too large colonizing world powers yeah. uh and so i, I that that is why i am team let's find a way to get this game forfeited i don't know how but one of the teams has to go down to eight players so the game has to get forfeited and then maybe that makes it so in australia is the final and australia finds a way to win the world cup this is me just being absolute peak chaos okay you just have to lean in with me here um but yeah i it. i understand people also like, yeah, we know that it's coming home. And I mean, I have friends who are English and like, it's, you know, annoying roll your eyes, but I also get like the, <laughs> the very legitimate thing of like, I don't want my colonizer to win. And I'm like, you know, I, I get that. I do. I do. I understand. Yeah. That part of it is just icky. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a bit, fr- I mean, I, overall, in terms of vibes, England has much better vibes because it's hard to have worse ones than Spain. 
So like, I mean, that. that's very true. <laughs> very true. Yeah. So like, there's that. But also, I I do think like I'm a little worried for this final as well because like like I said, I don't think England's been great. I think it's I think the big question for Serena is going to be how does she reintegrate Lauren James because it's kind of like the Sam Kerr dilemma. But I almost think it's it's a bit different than that because their best attacking performance comes when Lauren James is on the pitch. And caveat, if Serena does see coaching things that actually like allows her to free up space either for herself or for other people. So you got to do that if if they're going to man mark her, which I doubt Spain will, because that's another thing. Vilda's tactics are very naive. Um, think of back to that Japan game. It was very, that was the funniest game of football I have ever witnessed live. It was hilarious because Japan was just like, okay, you move the ball here, you move the ball here. So we're just going to shift. Our, like, they were just shifting, you know, basically just doing like shuttles back and forth, you know, just, just in a line, organized back and forth, closing off spaces, coming out and pressing when they, when they needed to, they knew how to like force the passes and not give them time for those incisive passes. But so there was there was more to it than just moving. But, you know, any sort of like team at this caliber at this level is going to be able to do that as well. And then it was like the way they they moved when they got the ball, they knew exactly where to go because they knew where Spain wouldn't be because Spain takes so many risks when they try to push really high and put players really high in position. So they dominate possession and push up really high that they were just able to pick them off. And they kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. And Vilda was so confused. He didn't know what the hell to do. And it was one of the funniest games I've ever been to uh, and watched live. And I just feel like if England is able to do the same thing, then the game can be fun. But as we've kind of talked about, like England has been more like don't make mistakes than they have been like, we're going to go on the front foot. And I'm hoping that they, especially in attack and having Lauren James back, they try to like exploit Spain rather than kind of sitting back and allowing Spain to to dominate possession and then hit them on the break because that's kind of like, it worked for Japan, but I don't think England's precision in their passing is on that level. I think certain players have those connections, but I don't think as a whole, they quite have that same caliber. Um, with the players that they have on the pitch at the moment. So, I don't know. I don't really know. I'm just kind of annoyed that this is the final. <laughs> I, I know. I'm like, I would be much more excited to talk about Australia Sweden. Um, <laughs> is it another matchup between Salma and Lucy Bronze? Yes? Yeah. No? Yeah, yes. it could be. Um, and that could be interesting. Um, yeah, I really don't want to talk. I'm like so not excited about this game. I cannot lie to you. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, technically, Olga likes to hit a ball from distance, so maybe that will cause some problems. I Sorry, I meant like a long distance shot. Um, this game is not going to be a mid-off, but like vibes-wise, it's a mid-off. You know what I mean? Um, Definitely. Vibes wise, it's mid off. Yeah, I'm just like not excited. <laughs> really not excited to talk about this game. Um, I'm like surprising myself at how little, how few thoughts are actually coming to my head. Even though I've like 
researched and prepped, but I was like, I really just don't want to talk about this game. Um, but yeah, I very much expect Spain to pass the ball about a trillion times, and then um, for Millie Bright to get on a ball and do just a ball over the top to like Alessi Russo <laughs> for England to score that way. <laughs> like, you know what? Uh, that's actually a very good point because that's basically what Serena kind of resorted to to like counter Australia when Australia's really putting them on the pressure. She's just like, hey, Millie Bright, you got a foot cannon. How about you just boot the ball up to the other box and let's see what happens? And there was some defensive calamity, and it worked. So well, maybe that's what happened. T- to be fair, England has actually kind of been playing that way without having Lauren James and not yeah. being able to have just like a really skilled player in the middle of the park. So they <laughs> very much have just been like, hey, send a big guy up top. Um, and <laughs> that's really what they did. And, I mean, to be fair, if – Spain is smart in their scouting. They can do the same thing. We saw Australia be very successful at times with just, I mean, to be fair, like when it, when a player got on the end of it, a Mary Fowler crossfield ball, which was also just pretty to watch, but also a few times, especially towards like after uh, Australia got that equalizer. And there are times it was a little bit of just, Hey, go put the ball to the big guy up top. <laughs> That'll work. Like, it was really funny at times that game. It was just very much like, oh, yeah, we're just going to do a ball over the top and kind of see what happens. Um, and, I mean, yeah, that's really how England has played, especially without having Lauren James. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, maybe that's the way they succeed. But also, if I don't know if she starts Lauren James or not. Um, well, that – oh, okay. So that there's an interesting topic then. We can we can do the, the hot takery and, and get into this to discuss this game. Do you think she should start Lauren James? Should... I don't know. I guess it's just going to – I think starting Lauren James is – or not starting her will just really be dependent on, like, I guess how Serena want. like, does she want to come out and be, you know, ultra-offensive, like, kind of take the – like, take the game by the scruff of – like, the scruff of its neck and really kind of dictate? Or does she want to – basically just like let Spain pass the ball 900 times and then hit them on the counter with a ball over the top, which like, to be fair, Lauren James can be on the starting 11 when you do that. Like Lauren James is also really good at threading a ball. So yeah, I think it's just, it's 100% going to be, yeah, I guess how Serena like kind of wants the game to play out, like how she wants to approach the game. Um, but also one thing that I was thinking about is like from a, from a we want to continue backing our player despite her mistake and kind of, let's say, change the narrative that's currently following her, it's 100% start her and say we are behind her 100%. Like, we know she obviously made a mistake and she's a young player, um, but we're, you know, backing her 100%. You start Lauren James. But from, like, an actual tactical point of view, I don't don't know. Because it could really go either way. Yeah, I am firmly in the camp of absolutely start Lauren James. Um, one, I think that your entire, like she's a player that we, as we know, is unguardable one-on-one. So you have to have like people, multiple people <laughs> challenging her, pushing her away, kind of like Nigeria did. And then that opens up space as well. And I also think that you, like what England should do is press high and hard to get the first goal because that's going to automatically change the way that Spain play. They're going to have to play, and that makes them a bit more predictable. Yeah. And I don't know how they're going to react to that. So I think you, you score first, you put them under pressure, and then you're able to defend if you need to. 
And then it makes it a little easier as well to hit them on the break. So like for me, and we also saw like one thing I do want to note is that bangers only, like we've talked about it before. Shoot always shoot. Be shooting. Right. Always be shooting. That's the thing. I know, I understand XG. I understand the data. And I ain't going to be one of those like Neanderthal homies. It's just like, I don't care about no numbers. Y'all know I like the stats. I like how <laughs> it helps. But like for me, I think it's severely, they de- severely diminish the impact of shooting, whether the ball goes in or not. I think sometimes you can earn, of course, set pieces, you can, which are a good outcome. You can have a keeper fumble a ball, fumble a save, and maybe that creates a very high XG chance by a tap-in. That's a great – that's something else that happens. Of course, you can score, and that changes the game. Like, I, I want to, like, Ella Toon's goal and Sam Kerr's goal, those were both bangers. And it happens from just putting your damn foot through the ball and, and having it go into the net. And there's an emphatic nature to that, and that does change games. And we saw it happen uh, in one match twice, and I just – I want to see that. So I think with Lauren James on the pitch, she's likely to put her foot through the ball after a dribble. She's likely to, like you said, thread passes and get somebody else. So maybe that, you know, Russo is in position to hit the ball or Hemp, who's actually had a really good tournament, maybe she is in position to hit the ball. But, like, I want, I want to see a bit more – brazenness in taking shots from distance because I think there are more good things that can happen than bad if you're just looking at it as a pure XG chance. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I know your team shooter shooting always be shooting too, but like this is one thing I need. I need this to become a thing that becomes normal across soccer again because I miss it. Yeah, I feel like the stance of this podcast is we love stats and if anyone wants to gift us abilities to read all the stats, we would love it. But we are very much a stats-based podcast, but also shoot a shoot. I literally tweeted it. So, it's so funny. <laughs> In the middle of the England-Australia game, I was like, honestly, we need some shooters to be shooting. I was like, just... And I am firmly in the camp, for those who do not know, I am firmly in the camp of, if you are near the 18 and you do something to beat your player, you better shoot the ball. I don't care if it's low XG or yeah. high XG. You better go. Sh- Unless it's like a thing where it's like very clearly you should have passed the ball so it's a tap in and your team really needs a goal. If you were near that, but like I'm talking just like nil nil, one one, or like maybe even look for an equalizer, but you got, you know, a lot of time left. You beat your player, you better go shoot the ball because you did all the hard work. Shoot the ball. Um, and so I am very, we are very much shooters be shooting. Always be shooting, shoot a shoot stance on this podcast. Um, and I would like to say that that was also how Sam Chris scored because a lot of people were like, pass the ball to Caitlin Ford. I was like, Sam Chris scoring a goal also. What do you mean? This is Sam Kerr against Mary Herbs. She's going to score a worldie because she always does, very specifically against <laughs> Mary Herbs. Like, Did you see the stat? That Sam uh, Curry scored in ten games ten, against Mary Earps. He scored ten goals. Ten, ten and ten for club and country. <laughs> that is club and country. Coming into the game, it was nine and nine goals against Mary Earps. I tweeted that. So I retweeted that too. I've never retweeted a tweet faster. Of seeing Sam Kerr against Mary Earps, she scored ten or nine goals in nine games for club and country. And as soon as Millie Bright gave her an inch of space, I said. Sam Chris scoring a worldie. I knew it was happening. I felt it in my bones. <laughs> uh, you know who else but, felt it? 
Merv. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say actually with that shot, it gets a very small deflection. I don't think Merv yeah. was saved it anyway because it's yeah. Sam Kerr and it's Mary Earps and it's narrative. But um, yeah, I was like, girly pops, Sam Kerr is scoring. What do you mean? She's not passing the ball in that moment. She's, she's going to have a chance to score worldly from outside the box. Honestly, probably one of the best goals in World Cup history, men's or yeah. women's. Nope. She's yeah. shooting. What do you mean? And look, Sam Kerr is, to her credit, even though at times it has been frustrating, Sam is always part of shooters be shooting FC. And she always shoots the ball. And she's that skill has really been refined in her, which is why we get these beautiful goals. And look, we were there, especially in her early Chelsea days. Of like, oh my God, please! But that skill has been refined, and now we get to see the fruits of that labor. Yeah, I'm absolutely here for it. It's it's what I want to see. It's a thing that could really liven this matchup because I want to. To be honest, and this is this is going to sound like a blanket general statement, and and I know that anybody listens to me uh, from, and I, I know my Swedish people are still going to be mad at me, but I think that most of the stale matches you get are European team versus European team. Um, and I think that gets frustrating. I think you really need a clash of styles to kind of force teams to play differently. And I think when this kind of matchup happens, it can be a bit annoying um, to watch because not that like tactical battles are frustrating, but there's a like, it's not necessarily a tactical battle. Like there's a thin line, right? Between a tactical battle and just like players and coaches being hesitant to do things. And I think that that's what usually happens sometimes in these games, especially at the stakes. And I get it. Like there are going to be nerves. This is like a big moment for all of these players. None of these players have been in this position before because it's the first time that both these teams have a chance to win a world cup. So like, yeah, it's, there's going to be a lot of that. But I also think on the flip side, I think a good coach and somebody who is preparing their team to go out and win this will have an edge if they're like, Hey, this is fun shit. Like go out there and like have fun. Now, obviously I can backfire if you're down like two nil after 20 minutes, but like, I do think that it's, you, you want players to be more loose than you want them to be kind of wound really tight. You want them to be focused, but you want them to be loose. And that's another reason why I think you start Lauren James because just her style is one of just like, it's joyful. It's loose. It's fun. She takes players on one v one. She kind of does the, the hard things and makes them look easy and that can be infectious to a team um if not like players themselves might feel a little you know a, a little more saucy than they normally would uh it definitely elevates like the status of play and like the the confidence level within a team so um yeah I'm, I'm hoping that happens and to be honest world cup goal scorer lauren james you know it, it's probably one of the best outcomes we can get from the matchup that we got so I'm rooting for it. Yeah, I feel the same. All right, Courtney, who you got winning? I'm not answering this question because I don't want to. <laughs> I just refuse to answer. <laughs> I want them both to lose. Okay. That's my final answer. <laughs> Courtney's team asteroid takes over, you know, um, Ice Age cometh. Um <laughs> Uh, okay, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I basically, my thing is, like, it doesn't matter what my score prediction is because, basically, I'm never, ever, ever going to predict that a Jorge Vilda-led Spanish team is going to win a game. I don't care how 
you know, like tactically sound or whatever the analysis is. I still don't think tactically that they will. I think Serena's better and we'll figure things out and the calmness of England will prevail. But that just means that we're going to listen to a lot of it's coming home. And the only thing that would make that actually hilarious and fun to look back on will be if Serena eventually becomes the U.S. Women's National Team head coach. That would be hilarious uh, for them <laughs> to win well, the Euros they, and the she, World Cup and then lose her. So. Per some reporting, she, the English FA already said no. But then they also said that if Gareth Southgate were to leave, that they would try to make or they're thinking about making her the men's team manager. And if I'm her, I'm like, get all the way the hell out of here. That's not that. I don't like that hierarchy breakdown at all. Like that lets you know where their priorities lie. And that's not cool. So like, I thought that was real stupid, real stupid. I'm just like, why would you ever want to do that to yourself? (laughs) Yeah. Like truly. Like, I don't know. Um, Andre, anything else about the quarterfinals, the semifinals? Or the upcoming final or third place game? Oh, I think Australia is going to win the third place game. Yeah, I think so too. I've been saying that like Sweden are ripe to get rocked, and people got mad at me. That's another thing I said, and I think it would be absolutely hilarious if you know Australia won that one by like three, four nil, or or just put three goals on their head. Like I'm I'm here for that, and I hope because I think Australia will be way more up for that than Sweden will. So it's a possibility. Yeah, I think having the home team advantage will help them. Um, you know what? Okay, so I, I want to talk about two things real quick. We'll have a, a, a longer breakdown and discuss things, but I've, I've intentionally not wanted to make this U.S.-centric, but we do obviously know that Vlatko has resigned, quote-unquote. Um, I'm sure there was... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. <laughs> I'm sure there was pressure for him to do so. Um, I want to continue to see more. I think Kate Margrave, as the GM, needs to go. It sounds like that position has probably been axed as well because in the in the language in the press release, Matt Crocker, who is I forget his actual title, but he's leading the coaching search, not Kate Margraf, so that maybe is a sign that oh. she's not gonna have influence in this way anymore. Um, so and, and that needs to happen as well. The thing that really frustrates me though is that like as we've been saying, the writing was on the wall about this. And people are now like kind of retcon the Black Co era and being like, well, it was a shootout and well, like it took a, be- a great performance and well, all these things went against them. And it's like, no, it's been years of this shit. Like, stop. We have been trying saying to focus this on just this game. I can't, I, I'm so annoyed that this is now the thing that people are gravitating towards because people have a weird thing when it comes to like authority and management. They're like, they, they start feeling sorry for them because people are being too mean to them. Blacko made his money. He's going to make his money. He's good. He's fine. The players have to live with this like failure. And yeah, so does he to a certain extent, but he going to move on. He'll coach a club team. He'll be good. Uh, it sounds like he's already going to be hired by Kansas City Current, go back to Kansas City where he was. Like, he'll be fine. He'll be coaching Dabinia. He'll be fine. And as, as a coach team, as a club team manager, he'll be fine again. But like, I don't. I never really understand when people take the, the the management side of things and start feeling bad for like authority figures. Like, why wouldn't you identify with like the players more than you will like management? It just always feels like a ugh. Why would? Why are you trying to like empathize with like I I like yeah. It sucks when anybody's fired, but this ain't like me or you being fired. Like he gonna be all right. Right. Like it sucks that your first stint as a national team manager was a complete and abject failure. Like. That sucks, but also you're going to be fine. 
Like, I, it I also sucks that you were allowed to continue in the job when you shouldn't have. So, like, he's earned a lot of money or been cashed a lot of checks he shouldn't have cashed. Like, he should have been out of that job because it was obvious that he couldn't really live up to it. So, like, he's fine. I'm sure he's yeah. fine. I'm sure his bank account is fine. He, he will 100% be fine. And, like, while I'm normally a little hesitant to sack a coach after their first, like, big international tournament because we know that silly things happen, it was also, like, there were – even through that, and I mean, we have been saying this, like, I know everyone's coming around to this now, literally go back to, what, J- J- June, June, yes, June of 2021, June, July, August, summer of 2021, when the Olympics were happening, we were talking about there are things that we do not like, like, there are things that we do not like that we are seeing, and we repeated the question over and over and over again, maybe we should do a limited release of just all those episodes again, saying, here are the receipts, we have them, of have lessons been learned from this international tournament? And the answer is no. Not a nary, we have an episode called Nary a Lesson Was Learned, but a single lesson (laughs) was not learned. There were things happening in that tournament that were not right. And I understand that it is harsh to fire a manager after their first international tournament, because even, like, even with Jill Ellis, who, like, she was a manager in the U.S. won two World Cups. Like, that first Olympics was a shit show for a few different reasons. But, like, and to me, and in all transparency, like, I was not watching the 2016 Olympics as close as I was watching these Olympics for several reasons. One of them, I was, like, younger <laughs> um, and in college. But, like, there were... We had big questions for Vlaco then and never in the subsequent months after those Olympics did I feel like they were building to get those questions answered or something was changing. Like, it was just a lesson was not learned and Vlaco's job was also repeatedly being saved by players just turning up and being absolutely fantastic. We've said it over and over and over again. There's I don't know if this current iteration of the U.S. Women's National Team has actually had a performance where they could hang their hat on. Like, like think about how, like, think about, and even if we're talking about this World Cup, think about how Australia played Canada. Or how even, like, England played China that in that one game. Or how, like, uh, like I can think of, um, or, you, I mean, I know I'm naming, like, technically, like, European-based teams, but how, like, or how Jamaica played Brazil. Like, those are performances as national team programs you can hang your hat on and saying if we play like this or if we you know do things like this we can beat anyone in the world or we can you know go and achieve our goals and succeed throughout the entirety of this tenure under Vlaco for the U.S. women's national team they have not had that performance they've had performances where one or two players or maybe three or four players have really really turned up and have been really really good which has just repeatedly saved Vlaco's job over and over and over again. I cannot think of a extremely, like, a, a solid hang-your-hat team performance by this U.S. Women's National Team. I mean, maybe recency bias, and, I mean, you did not score, so you did not get to the next round. Of Maybe you could say that, that technically that performance against Sweden was, uh, like, that type of solid team performance that you needed. But even then, it was like, I feel like that, if Roosevelt is healthy in that game, I don't know if the U.S. plays like that just because of Vlaco's unwillingness to 
change formations and things like that. And basically his hand being forced to do that. Like this team has just never had that, that performance that you honestly, that you need to win an Olympics, that you need to win a world cup. We have not seen that since the start. Yeah. And you know what my biggest thing, and I know this is going to sound very annoying coming from an American who's, you know, whatever, blah, 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 like all that, all that shit that happens on Twitter whenever an American has an opinion and, and about the teams, but also like, We've won for four World Cups. Y'all are just gonna have to take a back seat. Like I understand that like I understand that like in the the global concept of football, especially if your default is men's football, you can very much say like Americans don't know shit, but like when it comes to women's football, mm. we kinda run have ran this shit and we still have some of the best players in the world and we could have done a lot better in this World Cup. And I think that's my biggest annoyance from the from u.s soccer and not having the foresight and having too much of that american exceptionalism shit like just thinking everything's going to be fine because we're so talented i think if you look at the landscape of women's soccer you knew that you need more than just the talent you need to be able to have a structure and a system in place that maximizes that talent and it's not that difficult you just put in structures because these players are very good so if you get the ball to you know, you're able to put in a structure that gets the ball with two Sophia Smith 1v1 consistently. You're good. You have a way to, like, figure out how to, like, have a midfield structure, perhaps. Like, something where at least you're not leaving uh, a, a six on an island alone. I was really, you know, like that whole, the 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 athletic piece about the prayer circle um, thing got, like, so much praise. But it's like, that shit's been there. It's not new. That shit's been, we've been talking about that forever. What was it? We've been saying the midfield ain't midfielding forever. We've been saying it's that. A, like it's that, a wet noodle. Wait, the shit that is a wet noodle. <laughs> that shit's been there. Like, we've been talking about that shit. So, like, yeah, it's been there for a long time. And it's very annoying that it's just, like, people are, like, now, like, oh, yeah, look at this. And it's, like, yeah, this is what we've been talking about. But anyway, um, my biggest frustration from the U.S. side is that, and this is where I think people are going to be mad at me. But I honestly think if you look at this tournament and look at the way that it's gone, I do think if the U.S. would have progressed, they would have struggled with Japan. I think that has a, that's a team with a style that no matter what, even if we were playing very well, could have been a bit of a problem. But I still think this was a more winnable World Cup than 2015 and 2019. Like this could have been at least getting to the final and probably winning the final. I think this was the most winnable World Cup one talent level one of, of course there were injuries which we had as well but we are quite a deep team a type quite a deep pool of players and that's where my frustration is is that there was an opportunity here bigger as well that was bigger than just exceeding like you could have made history here and things were aligning throughout the tournament especially with the side of the bracket they were on where you could have gotten yourself with any level of like competent coaching, you could have gotten yourself to a final. And that's very frustrating. It's really annoying. <laughs> it's really, really annoying. Yeah. 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 It could have. <laughs> you said competent coaching and I said, well, not for Yeah, exactly. So the other thing I want to tell, like, real quick, like, last, last thing, and I know this has been a long episode, so sorry, y'all, but this happens whenever we <laughs> record for a bit. We just talk. Um, but I think I want to just mention, like, the overall lessons from this World Cup. 
because I, I keep saying it this episode, and this is really how I feel, is that you can't just focus on the winner because then you lose a lot. Like Japan showed a lot. They're going to be fun to watch in the future. A lot of those players are under 25. They're going to be very fun to watch in the future, and I would not put it past them to be lifting trophies from international tournaments. Like, they're going to be fun. Um, I think Colombia as well showed things. Nigeria, we saw, showed things. I think those are the lessons of the World Cup, that the talent gap is non-existent. And that's what's fun. Now, resource gaps, investment gaps, you know, gaps in coaching talent, uh, coaching pools, you know, being able to attract competent coaches, support competent coaches, competent programs, and ways that you do basic things, nutritionists, um, travel, you know, making things, you know, better for player performance, you know, putting them in the right and optimal zones to be able to perform uh, match to match. Like, I think, yeah, there are a lot of things that that are that still need to be worked on but those are things where you need to continue to apply pressure for federations fifa everywhere else the players themselves are ready and that to me has been the fun part like we are in a entering a golden era of women's football where talent is literally everywhere i want people if you can go back and watch that england haiti game you're about to see england play in a World Cup final, watch how they were stressed the hell out by Haiti, who had to go through a qualification process, right? Like the talent gap does not exist. There are superstars everywhere on just about every team. And, and it's fun. It's fun. So I want to see like continued investment and support for an, an elevation of support, because I really do feel like the game is ready to really take off as a global thing, which is another thing that makes me frustrated that we have an all-European final because I feel like the lesson that should be learned from this World Cup is that there's plenty of talent elsewhere and that we can, like, and that no matter who's playing where, you can find a reason to watch pretty much any national team playing at any given time. And it's going to be fun. And you're going to see some of the most talented players in the world. And that's extremely dope. And I hope that people look back on this World Cup and say, hey, you were introduced to, not, to a new generation of players. But that new generation of players comes from literally everywhere. Yes. It's never been a talent gap. I think people have always wanted to say it's been a talent gap. And it's never been a talent gap. It's always been an investment gap. And that's that. Yeah. Um, do you have a, like, and I, well, after the World Cup final, like, we'll probably get into deeper discussions about other things. You know, we'll analyze the final, but talk about the tournament overall. But do you have anything that kind of sticks out to you that you hope doesn't get lost throughout, like, the course of this World Cup? Like, the aftermath? Uh, first, uh, Juan Carlos Morales' Team Shakira. I think that's extremely important <laughs> to tell the people. That is important. I mean, if you have Team PK, we're going to have questions. I was actually going to be so deeply disappointed in him. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's not workout related, but it's on my mind. Um, I hope, I hope it's not forgotten. Despite no matter who wins this World Cup, um, that for I'm gonna say 29 out of 32 nations at this World Cup, the players have been fighting with their federations. And I know that we've talked about how exciting this World Cup has been, and that there've been upsets and. You know, we notice that the investment gap is closing and things like that, but that the investment, oh, yeah, I know I just said it, 
that it's never been a talent gap, it's always been an investment gap. The investment gap is closing, but it's also still there. It is very much still there. Um, friend of the pod, Ifiana Manu, after Nigerian got knocked out, mentioned um, at times a lack of resources for Nigeria, that yeah. players were sharing beds. Like, yeah. we know the investment gap is closing, but it is still very much there. And the story of these players needs to be elevated and put at the forefront consistently and not just, and I, I know that we're saying this from like, we are two Americans. Andre, you are literally currently in the U S I'm in Australia covering this tournament as a member of U S media. Also at times the, the lens in which we tell these stories needs to be changed And it. And I know that was, you know, with women's soccer, especially when we think about fights of equal pay, for example, the U.S. is constantly put front and center, which is important to acknowledge, but we also need to change the framing in which we are talking about these stories, but also in the way, like the context that we are, we are putting around these stories, because I think it's important to mention, for example, like who has achieved equal pay or not, but also it is just as equally important to talk about like, you know, what's going, like, what is the trend of equal pay, for example, on the continent? Um, cause it, it is very often that like, I just, I sometimes I just like for a few, like a few of these, uh, uh for several of these nations, I feel like the, the Western lens needs to change. And that often, and also that comes from having diverse, diverse voices in the room who recognize <laughs> the context and perspective that needs to be given with these stories. And so always power to the players, but always like they need your support not every four years when the World Cup comes around. They need your support every single day. Yeah, and that's another thing I'm hoping. I'm hoping that people, like, you know, it, it feels like, at least here in the States, that we're getting better infrastructure to be able to watch games, like, have the accessible. So, like, I want I want to see, you know, more people following leagues, like, domestically and fi- following these players domestically and introducing themselves to other players who maybe weren't at the World Cup or maybe they didn't get a chance to watch while they were at the World Cup. So, like, yeah, like, we just, like, I, like, Marta Cox hit another banger free kick. Like, she landed back uh, in Mexico to play her club team Pachuca and did it again. Like, just, just straight up hit another uh, free kick banger. And it's just like, yeah. You can watch her do this kind of like week to week just about. So like, yeah, let's make sure that that's also part of this because the growth of domestic leagues is important, but it also is important because it forces federations to pay attention uh, and, and they can't ignore um, a continuation of talent um, and, and people like the growth of it uh, from that. And so it does need like when it's every four years, then yeah, it's like, okay, well, that was great. Pat on the back. And then they can go quiet for a couple of years and then ramp it back up when it's time to like, qualifiers and other tournaments and all that business. So like, yeah, I agree with you uh, 100% about that. So, and yeah, we'll talk deeper about some of this stuff as well, because there's a lot to get into post world cup, um, you know, contextualizing the entire tournament as well. Probably also talk about like our favorite goals, favorite moments, those kind of things. Like we're going to have to like bring some things back because despite the knockouts not being as fun as we wanted and as fun as the group stages, we still had a lot of great moments and a lot of great goals and a lot of great performances. And so we'll highlight those in an upcoming episode. Um, but I think we're done right now. Courtney, are we done? Bye.
Thanks for listening to Diaspora United Podcast. Please subscribe and rate and review us anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Diaspora United Pod. That's Diaspora UTD POD. And message us if there's anything you want us to talk about in our next podcast. See you next time.